Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is holistic mama doc, Dr. Elisa Song, MD. She's a holistic pediatrician, pediatric functional medicine expert, and proud mama of two crazy fun kids and a great husband. In her integrated pediatric practice, Whole Family Wellness, and that's wholefamilywellness.org, she's helped thousands of kids to get to the root of causes of their health concerns and helped their parents understand how to help their kids to thrive. That's body, mind and spirit by integrative conventional paediatrics with a functional approach, including homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal medicine, and even essential oils. These health concerns have ranged from frequent colds, ear infections, through to asthma and eczema, even autism, ADHD, anxiety, depression, and autoimmune illnesses. Dr. Song created Healthy Kids, Happy Kids to share her advice and adventures as a holistic paediatrician and a mama. You can follow her blog at healthykidshappykids.com and get daily tips and inspiration from her on her Facebook page. So you just Facebook, just look it up, Dr. Elisa Song, MD. Now everyone can have their own virtual holistic paediatrician. Welcome to FX Medicine, Dr. Elisa Song. How are you? Good. Thank you so much, Andrew, for having me. I was super excited to be on today. Well, I've got to say, we're super excited to have you. And indeed, you've got a very <laughs> interesting background and history. Can you take our listeners through how, what sparked your interest? I mean, you're a pediatrician. So what sparked your interest with functional medicine? Does it stem from your childhood or is it something that stemmed from, uh, you know, a health, a health issue? Well, you know, it's interesting because it's actually neither. <laughs> you know, my mother is a very conventionally trained OBGYN. Um, so we really didn't have any natural medicines in our household. I mean, even growing up um, Korean, we didn't really have any traditional medicines. So I was only really ever exposed to conventional medicine. Um, and knock on wood, fortunately, I have been healthy my whole life and so have my children. And so it wasn't really a chronic illness that brought me to this either. It actually was, you know, way back in uh, my undergraduate years, long ago, <laughs> when uh, I was actually here in California at Stanford and I saw this flyer for this really interesting sounding conference. And it was a conference of what was called back then the American Holistic Medical Association mm -hmm. with all this mind-body stuff that I'd never really heard of. And so I went. Um, I wasn't even a health major at that time. I was studying political science and I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> oh, but, really? Um, that was back. Yeah. Yep. I was going to do health advocacy and children's advocacy and um, do a lot of good policy work. <laughs> um, so I always want to work with kids, but just in a different way. Yeah. And um, that conference... That was back in 1990, and that was when, you know, people like uh, two of the speakers were Andrew Weil and Deepak Chopra, and back then they were 
hardly known. <laughs> and so I went to this conference and I was just hooked. I was fascinated. Um, and so I actually decided to go to medical school at that point. And from there, I mean, all of my med school you know, fellow students and my dean, I mean, they just thought I was crazy for being interested in alternative medicine. And so um, actually, they, my dean wouldn't even let me do an elective in complementary and alternative medicine back then. Um, and there really was only one place to do that anyway. Um, and so during my pediatrics residency, though, here in San Francisco, there was a little more openness. And so yeah. my third year, I was able to create my own uh, elective in the rheumatology division. And I spent that whole month exploring alternative modalities. And I wrote a primer for the fellows and the residents and my attendings on an integrative medicine approach to juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and then it was after that that I went to a food as medicine conference and for the first time uh, heard Dr. Mark Hyman. And that was probably... Gotcha. Oh, by that point, it was probably about uh, 99 or so. Right. And that totally hooked me. I mean, I, I thought, I have to know what this functional medicine thing is all about because there was nothing in residency that I saw that I wanted to do as a career. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to do hospital work. I was tired of just putting out fires and putting Band-Aids on symptoms, and it just felt like there had to be something more. So this was it. I mean, this was the answer, yeah. right, to yeah. really healing kids and healing patients. And so from there, um, I, I believe I was the first pediatrician who actually took the integrative, um, the Institute for Functional Medicine's course, the AFMCP course, back in 2004. Um, and back then, you know, there were adult docs and practitioners practicing functional medicine, but really not many pediatricians doing that or practicing functional medicine for kids. And so, you know, I kind of had to pave my own way, but this is why, you know, podcasts like yours are so important because I want to motivate and inspire functional medicine practitioners to treat children just mm -hmm. as they treat adults. It's so doable and kids respond so beautifully. And so thank you for doing this because this is going to get the word out to get our, our generations healthier. Well, I, I totally agree with you. Like there's a whole segment of the patient population, kids who... There's not enough work being done, certainly not enough research being done on how natural medicines work in them. Indeed, you know, you look at about most supplements in Australia and it'll say from two till, uh, sorry, from 12 onwards. And That's it's right. very hard to get something below two, for instance, you know, like even probiotics, Um which are deemed to be safe. Or safe. they'll say, or it'll say, ask your practitioner. Yeah, your yeah, practitioner that's Doesn't right. know. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> so you know, there's a few, a few people, um, a lot of commercial people doing some education in um, on how to treat kids. Um, obviously, with a commercial interest behind it, and that's fi that's fine to a point. Um, I don't mind commercial interest. I just can't stand commercial interest when it overrides patient health, and this is why we need practitioners like you. So, so, you yes, know, and then, and all over the world, right? I mean, you're in Australia, I'm here in the States and, you know, I, I consult with different practitioners in Europe to really help them integrate more of a, a functional medicine approach. So this, this has to be a worldwide movement. Yes, absolutely. So today we're going to be talking about the prevalence of autoimmunity in kids. So it's something that, you know, you've researched right from the beginning, basically. More specifically though, about pandas and pans, now, I've got to say, I went off on the wrong track when I first heard about pandas. I thought you were going to talk about a certain um, 
you know, brand, if you like, of probiotics. So first <laughs> of all, though, in your practice, how common is autoimmunity in kids? And indeed, are you finding an increase in correlation with autoimmunity, just like we're seeing an increase in allergies? Yes. Now, I have to say, unfortunately, very sadly, I see too many children with autoimmune illness. And, um, you know, when I first started the practice, this is now 12 years ago, I didn't see many children with autoimmune disease. Um, you know, I, I saw a ton of kids with autism and ADHD and behavioral issues, um, you know, asthma and eczema, which is now considered an autoimmune illness. Um, But over the years, increasingly, I'm seeing a larger and larger cohort of kids at younger and younger ages presenting with autoimmune disease. Mm. Um, I have, you know, a ton of kids, unfortunately, with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, a handful with multiple sclerosis, some with lupus. And of course, we'll talk today about pandas and pans, which are autoimmune illnesses. Um, the ages are getting younger and younger. You know, a few years ago, if you had asked me what my youngest child was with autoimmune disease, I would have said that it was an 18-month-old who had been diagnosed with ulcerative colitis. Well, you know, just last year, I started seeing a kid, an infant, six months of age, diagnosed with Crohn's disease. I mean, that to me is unacceptable. This should not be happening to our kids, period, but it should not be happening to our babies. And so we need to figure out why on earth are kids suffering nowadays in this generation um, from these chronic illnesses that used to only be seen in older populations. So, and this is where, you know, we have the opportunity in functional medicine to really have an impact if we can begin also with mamas, right, and papas before they start trying to conceive, get them healthy, and then my job will be so much easier. Yeah, well, that's (laughs) right. right. But but it, um, it doesn't just start when you're pregnant. It starts before, well before, and it doesn't just start when the baby's born. I mean, we need to start taking care of everyone so that our future generations, you know, our kids' kids will be healthier Mm. if we do this work now. What about these correlations, though, with, you know, I mean, allergy, I remember, you know, there was the allergic salute, Mm -hmm. and it was was a thing that was noticed back when I was a child. It was, there's the asthmatic kid. And yes, there was a bit of a stigma back then, and and it was destigmatized very well in Australia, I've got to say, Um, but not, not just because of um, the activity of normalizing it. It was... Um, destigmatized because it became so common. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a huge rise in kids with allergies, um, environmental allergies, as well as food allergies, mm. you know, actual true anaphylactic IgE-mediated food allergies. Um, atopic illness is incredibly on the rise, asthma and eczema. I'm seeing kids, you know, now I look at a baby and I'm surprised when they don't have a little eczema patch on them somewhere. And the norm is to see kids with these bright red, rosy, excoriated, you know, kind of um, scabbed cheeks with eczema. Um, so, you know, what is going on? Well, you know, there's a number of issues, you know, it's, you know, we've all heard of the hygiene hypothesis that we're too clean and it's skewing our immune system. We're not being trained early enough to have that immune regulatory response. So then our, you know, TH1 and TH2 arms of our immune system are going crazy. Um, but it's, it's not just that it's, it's, that I do think plays a large role. You know, it's our birthing methods, the increase in C-sections. There's an awareness now um, of the uh, immediate difference in the baby's gut microbiome when they're C-section born or vaginally birthed. Yep. Um, 
feeding methods make a huge difference. And I understand, and this is not to make any mama feel guilty, but, you know, there are situations where breastfeeding is not going to be feasible or possible, but breastfeeding, you know, has a huge role to play in establishing that healthy gut microbiome from the prebiotics that are in breast milk to um, the probiotics that are transmitted. Um, We are, our babies are receiving antacids, you know, reflux medications almost from birth, you know, because they're quote fussy or because they're quote colicky. Um, and we know that antacids are are directly linked with a TH2 preponderance and an and increased likelihood of asthma and eczema and allergies later on in life. The same thing with antibiotics. They've shown that the earlier the use of antibiotics in infants, the, the higher the correlation with asthma. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to talk a whole lot today about vaccines, but, you know, the number of vaccines our kids get at young ages, younger, younger ages than what we received, you know, when we were infants mm. is, is incredible. And the adjuvants that are in vaccines um, are, you know, clearly linked with, with more and more autoimmune phenomena. Um, there's a syndrome called Asia, um, autoimmune inflammatory syndrome induced by adjuvants um, that huh. is in the literature um, and known to um, trigger autoimmune phenomena in susceptible patients. I mean, this is not everyone, but this is in susceptible no. patients. Yeah. Um, I think our kids nowadays, you know, we talk about adrenal fatigue in adults, but I see kids, you know, school-age kids, five-year-olds, who already are showing signs of adrenal fatigue, you know, because our lives as adults are way too busy, and that translates to our kids needing to be scheduled because we need to go to work, you know, and have our kids occupied and they're overscheduled. Um, so, so we're not allowing their bodies to get into that parasympathetic rest and digest mode. And of course, digestion is the key, right, in functional medicine yep. um, to overall health. Um, and we're maintaining their daily lives in the fight or flight mode. And I think that has a huge amount to do with our immune system imbalance, because I don't believe that there is more strep bacteria around or that there is actually more, um, you know, Borrelia spirochete, you know, in, in the woods, (laughs) but, but our kids are suffering more from autoimmune reactions to strep and our kids and adults are suffering more from chronic Lyme disease. So our immune systems aren't reacting the same way. So you've actually given me a big wake up call right on my sort of first, second question into the podcast. (laughs) And, but, but it's seriously what, like, you know, we tend to sort of focus on certain things that we learnt about were associated with a certain disorder in our textbooks without, and dismissing these very relevant evidence-based, you know, True things, like for instance, the we're constantly on the the alert these days. Even kids are now, you know, the performance quite early on academically is right there in in school children, and so of course that's going to have an effect on immune surveillance. So it's it's a big. Yes. You've given me a big wake up call here about not just thinking about the immune system, thinking about what affects the immune system. So well done. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, I think in functional medicine, we do a great job at uncovering, um, you know, biomedical imbalances. That's what we're trained to do. Um, but sometimes connecting the pieces yeah. gets more challenging. And yeah. we, we often make the mistake of taking too reductionistic a view and saying, oh, there's a chronic infection. Let's look just at the immune system. Mm, right. But there's a cascade of events and triggers that may have happened years before that we also need to unearth. Mm. I've got to say, you know, you're reminding me of the great heads up 
it was basically like a smack in the head with a sledgehammer from Andrew Hay Heyman. Um, and it was, you know, I've always been suspicious of this, you know, if you see low cortisol, give cortisol, it's fine. Don't worry, just give it, just normalize it, band-aid it. And I've always been very suspicious of that. And I was so happy with the work of Andrew Heyman going, no, 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 no. That can mean an infection. You give cortisol, you're just covering up the infection, letting it run free. So it's this real right. wake up call about looking about what happened before, why is something happening? And I have to ask, I know we're going to get off topic, but I have to then ask about, because <laughs> you, you brought it up with regards to immunization. Now, you yeah. know, I've previously said that given that there are, I am pro vaccination as long as it's done responsibly. And I do believe that there's a little bit of a guinea pig thing happening where we're as a society, we're lumping so many um, vaccinations together with an immature immune system. I have rationalised that by saying, well, okay, as a functional medicine practitioner, that we have the best to offer these patients to actually provide that support so that they don't necessarily react. There's even work on probiotics um, helping the effectiveness of vaccines now. Um, traditionally I've used things like herbs, you know, echinacea and you know, some zinc along with some medications, but where do you think we sit with regards to what we're doing nowadays with vaccinations? Well, you know, it's, it's such a challenging issue and I tell parents, um, who come to see me and, you know, about a third of the patients who come to see me are well children. So I have, you know, the joy of seeing healthy kids grow in yep. my practice. Yep. And, you know, I tell parents, one of the most difficult decisions you will ever make for your child mm -hmm. is which or what or how many vaccines to give. <laughs> um, and, you know, in, I don't know what the laws are in Australia, but here in, in the United States, some states do allow parents what's called a philosophical exemption to be able to choose um, the, the pace and the uh, the um, amount of vaccines that they would like to get. In California, we had that right, but that was taken away um, last year. So now they are mandated if you would like to send your children to daycare or preschool or elementary school. That's in Australia. Um, yes. So, so what I tell parents is that, you know, really, um, I, I am not anti-vaccine. But neither am I 100% pro-vaccine. I'm smart vaccine. So we really need to look at, you know, how to, um, you know, in this day and age where some vaccines are going to be required and parents don't have the options to homeschool, how can we then um, allow children to receive these vaccines safely? And is there a workaround? We do have in California the possibility for a medical exemption, which is a fairly, which is at this moment defined fairly flexibly. Um, so I try to help parents identify which child might be more at risk for serious long-term adverse reactions, uh -huh. not just a bump on the arm or a fever for a day, but, yeah, you know, yeah. longer term, you know, autoimmunity. Um, so those are the kids who have a family history of autoimmunity for sure, any psychiatric illness, any neurodevelopmental disorder like autism or ADD cancers in the family, infertility, um, blood clotting issues, because those all point to methylation risks, right? Right. Um, and then also, you know, what we found here in, in the United States, there's something that's sort of colloquially called vaccine court, and that's the court that awards patients damages if they're found to have been harmed by vaccines. It's, right. You know, it's kind of under the radar. Nobody talks about it. It's not publicized, but millions have been awarded to patients. Um, so, 
And some of these kids who have been found to be harmed by vaccines, the most famous case is Hannah Poling, who was found to have developed autistic symptoms. She wasn't, they didn't say autism, but autistic symptoms because she had an underlying mitochondrial disorder. Now, mitochondrial disorders don't show up until your system is stressed, like with a vaccine or with an illness. So, but some signs to look at for your child that they might have some mitochondrial issues, even in infancy, is if their tone is a little bit lower, if their suck isn't that strong, if they're, you know, still kind of slumped over, their back is still curved when you pick them up, not nice and straight when you hold them up, you know, under the arms, yep. they kind of slips through your arm. Yep. Um, older kids who, ha- who sit in that W position, do you know what I mean? When you're sitting on the ground with your yeah. bottom on the ground and yeah. your knees are kind of splayed out, yep. right? Um, if kids can't sit erect and upright on a swing or on their tricycle, you know, they're, they're slouching. I mean, kids have beautiful posture until they get to school, (laughs) you know, so if, if even when they're toddlers are, they're sitting, you know, slumped down or if they can't, if they have really weak pencil grasp, those are all signs that wait a second, we might have to think about a mitochondrial issue. Um, and I'm more cautious with those kids. So with those kids and in general, my guidelines for vaccines is I like to make sure that kids are entirely well, not even a low grade fever. Um, so that their immune system, A, can respond appropriately to the vaccine and mount a good response like we want, and B, so that they don't actually get worse from their intercurrent illness. Um, I also um, like to try to give, at, in the beginning, one at a time so that we know exactly which vaccines they might be reacting to, um, as opposed to giving five at once and not knowing which caused the reaction. This is something we don't um, have in Australia, and I wish we did. Really oh, wish we did. Oh, are they all combination? Yep, they're all combination. Yeah, yeah. So then, you know, if we have the ability to wait, you know, if there's not other risk factors like, you know, families who are traveling imminently at one month of age to, to India or to China um, or, you know, uh, you know, other developing countries, um, then, you know, ideally waiting till the immune system is a little bit more mature and their liver detoxification capacities are a little bit more mature. So even, you know, at six months, kids' immune systems respond differently. Yeah, that's right. Um, and when you wait, they require even fewer boosters. When we check titers, antibody levels on blood tests, we can see that they mount an appropriate response more effectively when they're older. And do the teachers um, last longer? They do. Yeah. They do. And often, I mean, most of them are permanent, like the measles, mumps, rubella yep. um, titers and the varicella, they're, they're lifelong. Yeah. Um, Tetanus, of course, wanes, yes. and we know pertussis wanes, but yep. we also know that the pertussis vaccine is is hardly effective, <laughs> which is why we see whooping cough, you know, every year yep. um, in the United States. Um, and then I do like to support um, kids, especially who have these methylation or mitochondrial red flags um, with CoQ10, um, with glutathione, uh, and, um, and with a little bit of methylated B12 or methylated folic acid. Um, so, so those are the different ways I work with families to try to come up with a schedule that feels good and safe and kids can tolerate. And with that, I have had kids, even kids on the spectrum who, um, you know, have received vaccines and not had any further regressions or problems. Yeah. So I've got to ask there, do you use a body weight formula to calculate, um, dose for say some, um, MTHF in a child or do you just give a, a safe dose? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because that, you know, that um, dosage is always a huge question, right? What dose yes. do I give to a child? And that has so much to do with our detoxogenomics, right? And how we process nutrients and medications. And that 
it really has almost nothing to do with weight, <laughs> you know? So, right. um, you know, I'll tell, a t- I mean, there may be some children who require much more than, you know, a 40 pound child might require much more than a 120 pound woman, um, because of the way they're processing. But given that we don't have that capability just yet, hopefully we'll get there. Yeah. Um, but typically, you know, for infants, I might start at, um, you know, two to 400 micrograms of at 5-MTHF. Yep. Um, and, with, and, you know, similar dosage with the methyl uh, B12. Um, and then, you know, for older kids, just, you know, I might even do, um, I have a formula, it's a chewable that has um, a, one milligram of each. So, yep. and that it tastes delicious and kids like it. So yep. that's a pretty easy way to give it. Excellent. So let's move away from that controversial subject of vaccinations (laughs) onto another in-depth. And I've got to say, this one took me blindside. I know naff all about this. And that's the Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Streptococcus, PANDAS. Can you explain to us, and indeed me, what PANDAS involves? And there's an associated sort of thing called PANS. What are they? Well, this is something that if you are going to start working with children, um, you will absolutely want to become familiar with because this is an increasing problem, I guess an increasingly recognized problem for kids who have behavioral issues, autism, sensory issues. Um, So pediatric acute neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strep or PANDAS is really a phenomenon that was identified, you know, back, you know, probably I'm, I'm thinking that the National Institutes of Mental Health actually recognized it as a phenomenon back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and it was thought to be exceedingly rare, but there were a subset of children who, after they were diagnosed with strep, typically a strep throat, they would have a sudden onset, like the light switched off and overnight have abrupt changes in their levels of anxiety, rages, tantrums, um, OCD behaviors, and tics, you know, motor tics or verbal tics. Um, now, it, so then with further investigation, it was realized that it, it doesn't always follow strep, but then there were these kids who were following a similar pattern with this ab- abrupt onset of these neuropsychiatric symptoms. Yeah. And so the, the term was changed to PANS, which is called, which stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndromes. So PANS is much broader. PANS encompasses infectious triggers like strep and also non-infectious triggers like environmental toxins, heavy metals, and molds. And so when we look at the infectious triggers for PANS, we we can further subdivide that into not just PANDAS, but we're recognizing that there are more and more infections that can trigger these symptoms, including very, very common childhood infections like Coxsackie virus, which is the hand, foot, and mouth virus, like herpes 6, which is the roseola virus. Um, mycoplasma pneumonia, which causes walking pneumonia, the Epstein-Barr virus or the monovirus, which of course is implicated in many autoimmune illnesses, uh, herpes 1 and 2, influenza virus, and even Lyme and other tick-borne co-infections. And so the criteria for PANS, 
And I'll read the criteria to you just so you get an idea of what um, of what uh, practitioners should be looking for. So the criteria is an abrupt, dramatic onset of OCD or severely restricted food intake. The symptoms are not better explained by known neurologic or medical disorder, and they have the addition of at least two of the following symptoms, anxiety, emotional lability and or depression, irritability, aggression, and or severely oppositional behaviors, behavioral or developmental regression, deterioration in school performance, sensory or motor abnormalities, and somatic signs including sleep disturbances, enuresis, or urinary frequency. Now, I will say as a caveat um, that the that the symptoms that are used for diagnostic criteria for PANS, um, those are the symptoms that the Stanford PANS Clinic uses as their admission criteria. Um, the Stanford PANS Clinic was actually opened back in, um, gosh, I think it was 2013. They're my next-door neighbors, and I work closely with them. Right. And um, they, you know, as soon as they opened their doors, they were flooded with patients who came out of the woodworks because there was this article that was, you know, printed in one of the local newspapers about this child who had been hospitalized um, with major psychiatric um, disorders and was basically healed by recognizing that he had underlying pans. Um, and so, but their criteria is very strict. They need a child who was totally neurotypical and then had a sudden onset after an infection um, of these neuropsychiatric symptoms. Now, the kids that I see in my clinic, and I see a lot of overflow kids because they have a wait list of maybe 18 months, two years, and again, that very strict criteria. But the more kids that I check, the more I realize that many, many more kids don't have this abrupt onset. They often have this underlying um, sort of sensory, maybe behavioral you know, issues beforehand, but then they have a gradual worsening of these OCDs, anxieties, separation anxieties, um, that then all of a sudden parents realize, okay, this is not okay anymore. What's going on? And then we check and sure enough, we realize either they have PANDAS or they have Lyme or they have Epstein-Barr. Um, so the more common presentation is a little bit more gradual, but if you do have parents, the tip-off would be if parents say, you know, yeah, right around the time Johnny was three, gosh, he was the easiest child, mellow, slept so easily, no problems going to daycare. And then all of a sudden he started clinging, having nightmares, um, you know, having pee accidents when he was totally potty trained before. Um, and so if I hear that, if the parents noticed that there was a change at some point, but they kind of chalked it up to something else, and I think, well, we should look at PANS. We right. should look to see if there's something more that, going on. That would be a really hard thing, though, to tease apart from emotional issues, wouldn't it? I mean, the, the, as a practitioner, the first thing that would be going through my mind, if a child had these sudden onset behavioral things, I mean, my first thing would be what's happening at home, what's happening even with regards to abuse. Um, that would be my alarm bell. So how do you then tease that apart to then look at pans. Yes. So that's a very, very good point because we also, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, there's always, I think in functional medicine, um, a diagnosis du jour. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be candida and then that <laughs> yeah. seems like it's Lyme and there's always something that's the big thing. Yeah. Right. So we never just want to say, okay, it's got to be pans or pandas. Um, and, and in reality, um, pandas and pans, they are what, what is called a diagnosis of exclusion because there's no exact lab data to say this is 100% surely PANS. Right. 
Um, so you have to rule out emotional behavioral stress, right? Like this child who started daycare, it could be the stress of starting daycare, yeah, yeah, sure. right? Very often we might see it's when the sibling is born that something changes. So, so we want to tease out, make sure that, that there's not other sort of emotional stressors, make sure that there's not bullying going on in the mm. school, that there isn't yeah. abuse. We want to make absolutely sure that there's not another underlying medical illness, um, you know, many kids with PANS actually also have concurrent um, autoimmune illness like juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Some have Crohn's disease. Um, so we want to make sure that it's not a pain issue that's presenting as behavioral symptoms too. So we need to still do a very complete, thorough history and a physical exam and do all of our, our other lab work too, not yeah. just the PANS workup that yeah. we would do. Can I, can I just ask, and, and I guess this is from a point of paranoia, um, I'm going to make the excuse that I want practitioners to be safe and aware, but how as a mm -hmm. pediatri pediatrician do you take out of the possible diagnoses the risk of abuse? You know, like the things that I'm aware of are things like uh, pretty obvious things, a rotational type fracture, a bruise in an unusual place, that sort of thing. What sort of, um, what sort of clues do you need people that practitioners to be aware of to say, you need to look at this first to exclude that, then you can go further. Are there any key things that you look at? Yeah. I mean, of course, you're going to get to know the family really well, right? Yeah. And if you have concerns, you know, even getting permission to talk to the teachers, right? Because that can yeah. be a big clue. You know, if, if the behaviors are um, only in one setting, that's a tip off that something is going on right. in one of those settings. So really, we want these, you know, for pans and pandas, it doesn't just stop at home or it doesn't just stop at school. <laughs> these kids are having trouble no matter where they yeah. are and who they're with. Yeah. Um, of course, you know, you're going to be looking at fears around, you know, let's say the, the genital exam, because for pandas, we do want to do rectal swabs yep. to check for perianal strep. Um, and of course, many kids are going to be uncomfortable with that anyway. Yeah. Um, but, but if you, um, you know, we all have a sort of clinical spidey sense. So trust, if you have that gut sense that something is not quite right, you know, with this family situation, then, you know, you don't, of course, necessarily want to report them right away, but you want to dig and you want to talk to all the family members. If mo if only mom is there, you want to talk with the dad. Um, you want to see how that child interacts with both parents and with the siblings. Um, and of course, you're doing a very thorough exam, you know, to make sure that there aren't bruises in odd places. Kids, their shins are often totally banged up. I mean, I look at my kids' <laughs> yeah. shins and, you know, I mean, they're, they're just covered in yeah, bruises. Absolutely. So that doesn't mean anything to me, right? No, mid-back, <laughs> mid-back underneath an armpit or the bottom uh, bottom side of a head, you know, that sort of thing exactly, is an unusual right? type of bruise. Yeah. Yep. Or on their buttock, right? Unless they just had a hard fall off their bicycle, yeah. right? But, you know, or, you know, so in unusual places um, that I'd really be kind of hard-pressed to um, uh, just take that as, oh, Johnny fell on his chair. Yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you for taking us. Like, it settled my mind and given me some more confidence into how to tease apart, how to basically exclude those worrying reasons and then to be able to look further into a an infectious type um, cause. So yes. we'll talk more about pandas and pans, and I guess we're going to lump them together a bit, even though there's a lot more to pans than what I thought. But with regards to pandas and, and you know, it being due to a streptococcus, a group A 
um, beta hemolytic streptococcus. So we often talk about probiotic Well, no, first of all, I'm going to ask this question. I've seen the term G-A-B-H-S, that's group A beta hemolytic streptococcus. I've also been aware of GAS. Are they the same or are they different? Um, those those are actually used interchangeably, so yeah. they would be considered the same. Yeah, cool. Okay, so that's the first thing out of my mind. The second one was we, <laughs> we commonly, you know, bang on about probiotic strains and that you've got to have the right strain of probiotic to get a, a reasonable effect. And that is given in certain studied situations, but we rarely think about strains of pathogens. Indeed, we know, though, that, for instance, Helicobacter pylori is very largely innocuous and it's a certain or it's certain strains that tend to be the pathogenic ones. Um, HPV, there are certain ones that are more likely to cause, um, uh, you know, a cervical cancer than others. So what about the strains okay. of GAHBS? Sorry, GABHS. Well, you know, it's interesting because I don't even think that it really has to be just group A strep. Um, right. I, you know, it, it does seem, and, you know, in terms of probiotics too, um, just as an aside, um, you know, many kids will even be reactive to the streptococcus species that are in probiotics. So, you know, looking for a probiotic that does not have strep, uh, strep thermophilus in it um, can be important. It just really depends on the sensitivity of that child. Yeah. Um, but I do see, you know, kids who have gamma strep in their comprehensive stool analyses. And, you know, that seems like that can be a trigger for some kids. Um, I've had kids who grow up group C strep, which is not considered pathogenic, you know, but we culture their throats. They have group C strep. And as soon as we take care of that, their neuropsychiatric symptoms improve. Right. So, you know, so I think that, um, yes, we do want to know the strain and I think, mostly just to follow it and make sure that the same, the same strain isn't coming back, that they're not um, harboring yeah, treatment um, effect, yeah. and being colonized with the infection, yeah. right? Um, but, but I don't think necessarily the strain matters. Now, we may find in the future that, yes, it does matter. But for now, what I'm seeing in the office is that it doesn't even necessarily matter that it's group A strap. Right. Okay. And so diagnosis, labs are pretty... Um, uh, ubiquitous isn't the right word, but uniform in their testing methods? Well, so this is, you know, and, and I, I apologize, I don't know. I was actually going to try to find time to look to see what was available in Australia to test. Um, but the two strep antibodies should be widely available, yeah. right, um, in Australia. You know, the first thing that we want to know for PANDAS and PANS is what exactly is the trigger? And for, for PANS, it typically is infection triggered. So even though I say that there can be a non-infectious trigger like heavy metals and mold, for the vast majority of kids that you see with these symptoms, they're going to have some sort of an infectious trigger. So um, in terms of infection testing, that should be pretty widely available and can be you know, fairly standard. So the strep antibodies that we're looking for are an anti-streptolysin O, an ASO titer, which goes up in an acute strep um, infection, yep. regardless of who is the infection. We're going to see that. So very often we'll see that very elevated. And the other test is an old test that used to be used very more commonly for um, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, which is the kidney disease that yeah. can occur after strep, which we hardly see anymore. Um, but that test, 
so in residency, this was something, you know, that we checked for all kids who presented with glomerulonephritis. Yep. Um, and that's called an anti DNA B strep antibody. Now you have to be careful when you order this because many labs, if they're not familiar with this test or they haven't seen it in a while, will order an anti double stranded DNA antibody. Right. Right. That's another autoimmune antibody. So they'll they'll do an anti DS DNA. Now what you want is an anti dash capital D capital A N capital A lowercase S lowercase E. Ah. And then the next word, capital B, strep antibody. So an anti-DNA B antibody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That should be easily available at any lab. Um, and then the other infectious titers that I check, um, I check for uh, IgG antibodies and IgM antibodies for herpes 6, herpes 1 and 2, mycoplasma pneumonia, a parvovirus B19, Coxsackie virus, A and B, CMV or cytomegalovirus, um, and uh, Epstein-Barr Epstein yeah, panel. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do like to check a Lyme Western blot, an IgG-IgM Western blot, not just a Lyme antibody test, but right. a Lyme Western blot, the full Western blot, right? Um, the reason why I check IgG and IgM antibodies is, while you know, while IgM antibodies are typically our acute infection antibodies, and you would think, well, if you have pandas, wouldn't your IgM antibodies be elevated? That's not typically the case. Sometimes it is, but more often than not, we see very elevated levels of IgG antibodies. And while conventional docs would look at an IgG, um, an elevated IgG level, as meaning that you had a past infection, if it if it's very elevated and you have a persistent immune activation against that virus, that can indicate a chronic latent infection with chronic inflammatory triggers. And so I will still treat for that as well. Right. Because, uh, elevated Epstein-Barr and herpes 6 have been implicated, you know, high IgG levels in fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, immunodeficiency syndrome. And, and I do find that for many of my PANS kids that, that some or many of these infectious titers are elevated. Um, so those are going to be the standard tests that are fairly easy to check in a conventional lab. Um, to confuse the picture, we do know that there are patients who have seronegative PANS. Now, these may be the kids who actually have the um, toxic exposures, but we don't know necessarily right. what those are. Um, but here in the States, there's a panel called the Cunningham Panel, mm. which is developed by Dr. Cunningham, um, that's offered through a lab called Moleculera. And, you know, it's, it was only fairly recently available in the States. Um, at some point, hopefully, it will be available in Australia. Um, but, but this panel checks for various autoantibodies um, in the brain, and uh, including two dopamine receptors, uh, um, anti-lysogangliocyte antibodies, and tubulin antibodies. And also for activity of an enzyme called CAM kinase 2, which is found to cause um, a neuronal excitation. Right. Um, so that can be helpful, you know, if you're if you are highly suspicious, even after all these titers are negative, that this is a kiddo in front of you with pans. Yeah. Then I'd I would do the Cunningham panel as a second line. It's certainly not a first line. Gotcha. So uh, I've got to ask. So that would be a, a serology. 
Yes, panel? it's yeah. a blood test. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yep. Now, as far as functional medicine testing goes, I always, always, and I'm sure you know that that um, most functional medicine practitioners would say this, but always check a comprehensive stool analysis because even if children have zero gut problems, there is very likely going to be an imbalance in the gut, whether it's um, absorption issues or subtle inflammation or dysbiosis of any sort. And of course, many of these kids don't just have um, bacterial dysbiosis, but they have yeast in their guts and many have parasites in their guts. Yeah. So we have to regulate and balance the gut in order to have um, the optimal chance to have proper immune regulation. Um, and then the, the other test that I find very useful for kids is a urine organic acid test, um, which you know our conventional labs can do as well, but there are some markers that are going to be found um, only in the, in the functional labs. Um, and there's one marker called a quinolinic acid, which I never really paid that much attention to until I started treating kids with pans. And quinolinic acid, when it's elevated, that's another tip-off for me that I need to be looking at um, infections, you know, underlying neuroinflammation yeah. and, and its triggers. So is that like an adduct byproduct or something or a quinolytic acid? It, yes, it's a byproduct. Right, mm-hmm. right. And that's part, I mean, that's going to be, if you order, um, you know, the organic acid testing through Genova, um, yep. that should be, it's, it's right there as one of the markers. Okay. Now, right back at Is the... Is Genova be- available in Australia? You, well, it's based in the US, but you can order it. Um, I, I think you'd have to look at the stability of the actual samples during transit, but a lot of them, yep. I, I know that you can still use them for certain tests. I don't know about the the time stability of of these tests. CDSI, I think you yes. can. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Great. So right back at the beginning, you were mentioning something like even the rubiola virus uh-huh. being a yes. potential cause, and that's extremely common. But that pans and panda aren't common. So how rare is it? What's the what's the tree? What's the reason that some kids react and others don't? Many others don't. Yeah. You know, I, it, it probably has to do with an underlying susceptibility as in any chronic illness. Because yeah. very often when you look at family history, there is going to be, even if it's generations back, um, a family member who had Sydenham's chorea, right, or who had rheumatic fever post-strep. Yeah. So there's that susceptibility to this abnormal reaction to strep. And very often there is a family history of autoimmunity. Um for for the kids who go on to develop panis or pans, we do find that there is, um, you know, we typically think of autoimmunity as um, sort of an upregulation in the Th1 armor of the immune system and, you know, an improper upregulation of the T regulatory armor of the immune system in response to that inflammation. But in pandas, we're seeing that there is an upregulation in the TH17 response right. with interleukin-17 um, implicated. And so for whatever reason, you know, these kids just have this inappropriate TH17 response, and then they don't have that counter-regulatory mechanism responding to reduce the inflammation, that normal inflammation that we all have when we get infections, but it's just not being brought down. Uh, to appropriate levels. Have you ever met a guy called Dan Littman? I haven't, but I'd love to. Who is he? (laughs) Segmented filamentous bacteria, SFMs. They're sort of um, cautiously classified, if you like, um, as candidatus arthromitis because they don't know where to put it. It's related to the Clostridiae. It um, 
colonizes the gut, the distal ileum, uh, around about three weeks of age. And it, its job, if you like, it was first thought, thought not to be in humans, only um, mammals and rodents. But now I think they've seen it in humans. And its job is basically to wake up the infant immune system to say, we've got a job to do, get moving. You need to be producing immune cells. You need to be on immune alert from now on. It's your job. And then as long as we've got good guys to put the brake on, it just says, okay, my job's done. You've got an immune system and I'm not going to go any further. But if we take away that break, then it primes interleukin-17 for Th17. And then, you know, what have you got? Th23 um, and for autoimmune disease. And this is brilliant work by Dan Lippman, Ivalio Ivanov. He's at New York State Uni. Ivalio is at Columbus State Uni, I think. Oh, I will definitely look that up. I mean, because really, you know, the problem is our 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 infants, you know, even from in utero, their immune systems aren't being trained properly. And so there's something going on with the way now that they're reacting to these common infections. So the more we know about that, the more we might have these areas for intervention very early on, even before they get hit with their first strep infection. Do you think, like, the, I was quite sceptical of genomic, genetic testing. The more I learn about it, the more I think... This is where medicine can personalize itself. This is where you can uncover potential risks, preponderances to all sorts of diseases. I guess there's always that, that ethical risk, uh, the dilemma of how is data held, you know, the old HeLa um, cancer cell argument, who owns what. But wh where do you think we're heading with regards to genetic testing, looking at the risk oh, of gosh, that, this? Oh, gosh, you know... That is such a good question because, um, you know, now the number of companies here in the States and I'm guessing probably in Australia yep. and worldwide sure. who are really capitalizing on the results of, you know, testing from, you know, 23andMe, looking at all those SNPs and then really um, taking those SNPs and suggesting various supplements or medications that might, you know, be able to bypass those SNPs. I mean, it's every day I feel like I look and there's another ad I see on my Facebook feed, yeah. <laughs> you know, for another genomic company. And, um, you know, for the most part, I tell parents, you know, we do know quite a bit about methylation, but the other SNPs were really in the infancy of understanding um, their clinical relevance, and not just that, their interactions. Yep. Right? We don't know how all of these SNPs interact. And I've had patients who, you know, have had, you know, they are um, homozygous C677T, you know, for the MTHR mutation, and they are the picture of health. And other kids who have no MTHFR mutations, and they are sick as can be. Right, so it's it's not the only picture, and so what I worry about again, I mentioned earlier on that I do worry that we're becoming too reductionistic in all of this. Yes, and saying, well, this SNP causes that. It's not, you know, it's not one gene, one disease, and we're moving back to that that antiquated way of thinking if we're looking at SNPs in that way. Um, and so I don't think we're there yet. I I do have high hopes that we will get there. And in that way, then, we'll be able to know exactly, for instance, which kids are going to have what reactions to vaccines, the dose of vaccines, oh, you know, could we give maybe an eighth of the dosage, yeah. you know, to a child as opposed to, you know, an infant receiving the same exact dose of hepatitis B at birth when they're seven pounds of weight as, you know, a 16-year-old. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, so, 
we've we've gotten there with with other SNPs, you know, with regards to I you know talk about this because I've r- written about it, and that is Helicobacter pylori. You know, there are some SNPs that patients will require double the dose of the PPI yeah. segment of that tri- triple treatment, triple therapy, um, because of their genetics, and you know, like that's well documented, not used. <laughs> in Australia yet, yeah. but it, so how far do we then have to wait to to uncover the the relevant SNPs that, that can help us treat, you know, this to pandas and pans? I think that's a long way off. Yes, and you know what I'm seeing, unfortunately, in in some of the um, in some of the uh, practices uh, here, I, I see some uh, practitioners using you know the 23Me analysis, and then from there recommending. Like thirty different supplements to try to bypass each SNP, so I don't think that's the answer either because we don't know which is the most relevant, <laughs> you know, for what's going on. And you know, what I tell parents when it comes to kids, and when I tell other practitioners, um, if you can find the one or two key imbalances, you know, the core of the problem, and you really just address those, many of the other imbalances fall into place. So then you don't need to go chasing after those other imbalances with your nutraceuticals. Um, so, so I, you know, I don't, I don't think our body is that simplistic that we can really say, well, you need X, Y, and Z, and, you know, that's, that's going to take care of everything. I think we need to step back and say, well, what's the big picture? What are the maybe one or two or three things that I want to address now? And then let's reassess in a couple of months and see, well, did the other issues actually just fall away? Yeah. Dr. Elisa Song, we are running out of time, but I could talk to you for hours. I think, though, that we need to round off a subject now. So would you be amenable if we invite you back onto FX Medicine for part two of Pandas and Pans, and we'll we'll delve into treatment regimes and what you can do to help these kids? Yes, that would be, Andrew, my honour and my pleasure. I would love that. Okay, so before I interrupted you, we were talking about TH17, <laughs> How about we round mm-hmm, yes. off on that subject and then we'll get you back for part two later on and we'll delve into treatment. How's that? Yes, that's perfect. Well, you know, I just want to mention we've been talking about TH17 and really the implications for um, uh, sort of neonatal immune training. And what I found fascinating was that this upregulation of TH17 can actually cause disruptions in the gut mucosal barrier and also the blood-brain barrier. And that's right. fascinating because I think that could be one of the answers. I'm so glad that you mentioned that research because I'm going to, as soon as I get off, look up Andrew Lipman and his research. <laughs> um, but I think that could have a lot of potential um, uh, sort of answer for why mm. our kids are getting so sick and their brains are on fire. Yeah. You know, their brains are on fire like never before. And so there's something happening to that blood brain barrier that they're more susceptible to infections and these autoantibodies attacking. I, I got to say, like, I'm so impressed and I'm so enthralled that you put the the very controversial hot topic of vaccinations in its place, that there is a responsible place. And I do find facility for these medicines. I actually do. I just totally agree with you that it, you need to do smart vaccinations. Um, I just wish we had the facility to be able to do that in Australia. I think that's a bit of a shame when you can. And I'm, I'm so glad that you talk as a true expert in your field, um, obviously loving the kids that you look after as well as your own. 
Um, I can just see you just being the favourite doctor that these kids want to go and see <laughs> because you're fun and you're also enlightened, but you're also passionate about treating them properly. So thank you so much for taking us through an introduction of a very heavy topic, and that is Panda and Pans. Yes, well, thank you so much for having me on the show today. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.